0: Friends, as we find our way back to our seat, I just want to remind you, if you're a guest here with us today, this is going to be the fourth message in a series of messages that answer or seek to answer the big question when we talk about the good news, what is so good about the good news? The good news, of course, being the gospel, the true meaning of that word gospel. As we saw A month ago now, it's hard to believe how quick January has flown by. As we began this month, we looked at the fact that the original word in the Bible, where we get evangelist, evangelism, evangel, that word in Greek that we translate as gospel or good news, meant not just good news. But great news, life-changing news, news that your army has saved the day and won the great victory, news that you've been set free from slavery, just life-giving, life-changing news. And they had a special word for it. It was so good. But in translation, we lose a lot of the joy and excitement of that. The good news. To us, gospel is just the first four books of the New Testament or a type of country music where we sing old-timey stuff. We like that. It, it, it's special to us, but it's so much more. The good news. The good news truly is for sharing. We talked about that before you could receive the good news, you had to know that you needed it. It's like going to the doctor and not knowing you're sick. He's trying to give you medicine and you refuse because you don't think there's anything wrong with you. You need to embrace your situation and be in touch with who you truly are in this broken world. The bad news has to come before the good news. We always say, do you want the good news or the bad news first? In this case, you have to know the bad news before the good news makes any sense at all. And as we dug into the good news even more last week, we saw that the wages of sin, the bad news is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God. We looked at gift, charis, which means grace. We looked that God is a gracious God and that his great giving heart, it leaves an impression on us it changes us. In fact, as we're told to live our lives with the grace and mercy of God in view, keep your eyes set on Jesus. Think of him on the cross. Think of his grace shown in its fullness for you. And that will transform us the way we think, our attitudes, and the way we live our lives. Well, grace now brings us to something that grace gives us. As we look at the actual gift that God's gracious heart was motivated to give us, that gift is seen very clearly in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. In Luke, chapter 23, I'll begin a little early, as I often do, for context. It says of the day of Jesus' crucifixion, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They divided up his clothing by casting lots. Father, forgive them. That is the gift of God By his gracious heart. Jesus himself prayed and God answered for our forgiveness. So that's what we're looking at today. What grace has given us, we are forgiven. We're forgiven. Now it's not as common as it used to be. The image you see before you, of course, harkens to mine. Possibly the first, some people say it's the first novel ever written in the English language. You know, a novel, a long fictional narrative, is actually, in the course of human history, quite a modern thing. Many people, as they study literature, they say the first novel that we would really really call a novel, it wasn't written in English, it was in Spanish, it was Don Quixote. Some of you remember The Man of La Mancha, or you've seen a musical based on it. But in the English, it had a much more serious tone. It was... A spiritual allegory written by a persecuted Christian in prison. Of course, it's Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Written in 16... 78 the 17th century now if you know your english history uh, henry the eighth they broke away from the catholic church that was about 1530 something and and so now it's 140 years later they're no longer catholic in england though some people are being persecuted as catholics now the church of england the anglican church is in power do they quit persecuting no they persecute all the more they persecute anyone who doesn't conform to their rules in fact they passed in the seventeenth century a series of laws passed by Parliament. They called them the coven it 's a funny name it 's like Coventicle the Coventicle laws try to try to say that word three times quickly. The conventicle laws talked about convening you could not gather more than five people for religious purposes outside of the Church of England. <laughs> And so all of the Protestant groups like Baptists and others from the, the English Reformation, they were lawbreakers. They were the secret church meeting in secret. And one of those early Christians, John Bunyan, was thrown in prison just for meeting with other Christians. Did they give him 90 days and a fine? He was in prison for 12 years. And while he was in prison suffering for his faith, he wrote the first english novel pilgrim's progress it was an allegory the main character was named pilgrim because it's an allegory it speaks to every man he was the every man but pilgrim as you see the picture of him he had a problem he always was described as having a book in his hand that taught him of course that's the bible And from the book, he realized that he was burdened with a great burden on his back that he could not remove. Of course, that burden is the sin that all of us carry. And the Bible reveals to us our problem, the bad news. The wages of sin is death. And he was doomed because his home was called the city of destruction. And over two volumes... In a book that was second only to the Bible in the English language in printing and and has been translated in 200 languages. In two volumes, Pilgrim travels from the city of destruction to the celestial city, to heaven. But along the way, his problem, that load on his back, needed to be taken care of. Well, eventually, he comes to Christ. He comes to the cross. And as he kneels at the cross and gives his heart to the Lord, the straps break and the burden is lifted. And it rolls down the hill into the empty tomb. He's forgiven. He gets a new name. He's no longer pilgrim. He's now called Christian. And he has many more adventures and troubles. And you can read an updated English version because in the original old-fashioned English, English it's a hard slog. But it's still a worthwhile story. He runs into people like Mr. Legality, Mr. Civility. You don't need God. Just trust your own good works. And it still teaches many amazing lessons. But what a beautiful picture when the load is lifted and he is forgiven. Because that is the biblical definition of forgiveness. The ancient language, forgiveness meant to let go. To let go. How do you let go when you forgive? You let go your right to be offended. Many of us love to be a victim. In our society, oh, if you can play the victim card, you have a winning hand. We're victims, we're offended. The only sin left in our promiscuous Western society is intolerance and hurting people's feelings. We all love to be offended. We nurture it, we we cling to it. The biblical forgiveness is to let go that. Let go an offense. Let go of a debt. And Scripture reveals through God's grace that God has forgiven our debt. He's let it go. He's cast it away. But he's a just God. He couldn't just do it because of his love. He's faithful and he's just. He's also the just judge so the sin needed to be paid for and that's where jesus comes in that's the essence of the good news now when we come to jesus before he hung on the cross on our behalf you could tell he was heading that way not just because he was obedient to his father but because he was in a broken world and he loved sinners he was a friend of sinners It got him in trouble with the religious people. People who didn't want to be forgiven because they didn't think they needed to be forgiven. You know, when you are unforgiving of others, it's like you're putting walls up. Your pride says, I don't need forgiveness. I'm better than them. I don't need that. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus came to be a friend of sinners. There was nobody beneath his notice. And when it came to eating meals, that was way more important than it is now. You can go into a crowded restaurant and it's uncomfortable, but have you ever been in like a fast food restaurant during a lunch hour rush in the city? and or, or at Costco. Oh man, I know Costco. You have that amazing $1.50 giant hot dog and pop and there's no tables free. Oh man, all the carts are parked there and sometimes you'll see one person and they'll have three empty spots and it's uncomfortable, but you say... Can I share the table? Oh, sure, come on, go ahead. And you have your meal together. Not in Jesus' culture. In his culture, eating with people who were holy and law-keeping, that was so important. The Pharisees, the legal experts, they began as a diner's club to only eat their meals kosher with other kosher diners. That's where the Pharisees started. And so when they saw Jesus eating Breaking bread with sinners, not only sinners, but the worst of sinners, those guys who betrayed their country to the Romans, tax collectors, that was too much. Jesus, the friend of sinners. And they called him names, and Jesus referred to that once. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus says this, referencing his cousin, John the Baptist, who came very ascetically, you know, fasting and eating locusts and, you know, not living like other people. Very, very ascetic life, like a monk. Jesus says, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man, how he referred to himself, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's how he was known to his enemies. His greatest crime was to be a friend of sinners. But isn't this who we need to forgive us? God's only son to be our friend? The best example of Jesus being a friend of sinners is when he called his disciple Matthew to follow him. Matthew was also known as Levi and he was a tax collector. In Jesus' rough. Followers. His 12, he chose a terrorist, tax collector, rough, vulgar fisherman. Just, he didn't choose the kind, religious, nice people. He had a rough bunch of followers. He really was a friend of sinners. A little earlier in Luke, and you notice there's a lot of passages from Luke because Luke focuses on God's love for the lost, that he was a friend of sinners. In Luke chapter. Five, we read. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his home. You know table fellowship, the rules that you don't cross? a banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, I'm sure Jesus did air quotes, I know that was an ancient thing, the righteous because he's being sarcastic those who claim to be righteous and yet are the worst of sinners. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We're sick with sin. Where else should the doctor be? Not in the country club, in the clinic. Jesus is there to seek and save the lost, for which I am eternally grateful. This is the forgiving God. This is the attitude Jesus displayed before He gave his life for us on the cross. As we sing songs, as we sing today of forgiveness, of God's grace, think of the old hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the shed blood of Christ alone. Which can pay the debt that we may be forgiven. For he is holy and he is just. In Mark chapter 9, or Hebrews rather, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews is a fascinating book that harkens back to the Old Testament, writing to Jewish believers. The Jewish believers are reminded of the importance of shed blood, for the wages of sin is death. Speaking of the temple the temple vessels and so forth being cleansed with blood and sanctified. The author writes in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And then that famous passage, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The debt must be paid. For you and I, it's free. It's of grace. It's a gift. It's not earned. We're forgiven. But the gift was bought at a great price. Incalculable. The precious blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Again, we often say it first Sunday of every month. We gather at the communion table and we're reminded what Jesus says of his shed blood. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse seven, the Apostle Paul says of Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption means we were purchased out of sin and death. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. (laughs) He lavished his grace on you when Jesus died for you on the cross. Oh, the grace of Jesus. As I said, he is the righteous one. He didn't cut any corners. He paid the debt in full. He is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins over the year 2000 years of church history christians have often argued and been divided over the question well that's up to the point where i accept christ as my savior he died for those sins but what about the times i sin as a christian do i need to get saved again there's whole branches of the church that think you can lose your salvation you can get your salvation you got to catch me, I hopefully I die on a good day because it depends how I've sinned or not. But really, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that as God's children backslide or out of fellowship with Him, that intimacy is damaged by our sin. We need to keep short accounts with God to confess our sins. Like Paul says, I have to die to myself every day and live to Christ. And we can do that because we're saved not by our good works, We're saved by God's grace through faith. And we're kept by God's grace through faith. Psalm 51, David following the worst episode in his life. He was an adulterer, a murderer. This is the man after God's own heart who stumbled so badly. In Psalm 51, he recognized that for all the damage he did, the lives he took, The family's destroyed. That ultimately all sin that we commit to one another is against God. David in his repentance and his confession in Psalm 51 writes, For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. And then he goes on, surely I was sinful at birth. David recognized that he was a sinner in need of forgiveness. And it's a psalm of repentance and restoration. As God, the righteous judge, will forgive. We know his heart. Keep short accounts. Don't run and hide like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Bring it to God. Find forgiveness, restoration, intimacy and fellowship with the God who loves you. 1 John, the apostle John is writing to people, some of whom claim that they didn't need forgiveness because they didn't have any sin to repent of. And John says, that's not really lining up with reality. John writes in 1 John chapter 1, but if we walk, I'm beginning a little earlier again for context, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that is walking in Christ, living your life in Christ, as He is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. But if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, And will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. He's faithful and he's just and he forgives. Friends, this is the good news. This is what we need to experience. But it's what we need to share with others as well. He doesn't forgive like we forgive. <laughs> you know, we forgive something, but we don't forget it. We forgive it and we set it aside until it's convenient to take that offense up again and weaponize it and use it against one another. But when God forgives, he truly forgives in a way that we cannot. That familiar passage is in Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He remembers them no more. We remember what we do, and we often in this world bear consequences for our actions, But God has cast them away. You're forgiven. You're set free. You no longer have to bear the guilt and shame of that. We seek forgiveness from one another. We forgive one another. But truly, it's all based on the forgiveness that we have in Christ. For we finish with this thought. We need to forgive ourselves. We need to forgive others. Because we've been forgiven. Remember last week we talked about how the grace of God transforms us and we become more gracious people? Well, that grace brought forgiveness. How can we who have been forgiven so much? Your sin put Jesus on the cross. He was willing to die for you. And if he forgave you that debt, how can we not forgive others? In comparison, what others do is so small compared to what Jesus did for us. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That phrase occurs in the New Testament again and again. For instance, in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians and Ephesians are sister books. Many of the themes are repeated in Colossians and Ephesians. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, holy, And dearly loved. Clothe yourselves. Because he's talked about. Put off the old sinful nature. It's like an old dirty coat. And now clothe yourselves. With compassion. Kindness. Humility. Gentleness. Gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. And forgive whatever grievances. You may have against one another. Forgive. As the Lord forgave you. That's really what it's all about. Forgive as we have been forgiven. We should be known as the most forgiving people in the world. But that's not, the, that's not the, how they characterize us in society. We're known as being intolerant, judgmental, unforgiving, when the reality should be just the opposite. Sometimes we give people cause for those type of criticisms. And sometimes it's completely unfair. People not understanding that we don't think we're holier than thou. We think that we're sinners forgiven. And we want to point you, point you to the one who we found. The cure for what ills us in mankind. Clothed with Christ, forgive as you have been forgiven. How often do we do it? What if somebody continues to sin against you and offend you. Do we come to an end of that forgiveness? Well, no. We don't come to the end of God's forgiveness. So Jesus, reminding Peter in that familiar passage, in Matthew 18, I love Peter, he asked the hard questions. Some would say the dumb questions. But I'm so thankful for people who ask those questions because we all have them. We just don't say anything. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? You know, that's a perfect number. That's a Bible number. Peter thought he was being pretty good there. Pretty patient and forgiving. Jesus answered him, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. In Greek, it's like 70 times seven. It's like unlimited. Jesus says, you don't come to an end of it. You don't come to the end of my forgiveness You shouldn't come to an end for your forgiveness as well. Isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray? I love the fact that at our chapel at St. Mary's, we always end our prayer time at the end of chapel by saying the Lord's Prayer together. The Protestants, we call it the Lord's Prayer. Bible, you real aficionados of your Bible, you call it the Disciples' Prayer. Our Catholic friends call it the Our Father. But we all know it and we all pray it. Though oftentimes we don't quite pay attention to it because it's revolutionary. You pray in that prayer, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. (laughs) That little word in Greek, as, means forgive me, Lord, to the same extent, to the same amount that I'll forgive somebody else. Forgive me at the same speed that I'm willing to forgive others. You ever done that where, you know, yeah, you're going to eventually forgive them, but you're going to let them stew. You're going to let them sleep on it. You're going to let them suffer. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're telling God to do that to you. Don't forgive me when I asked. Let me stew. No. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's prayer as part of the Sermon on the Mount Jesus said he's listing the things to pray for give us today our daily bread forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one and then he makes application and this angered people when people heard Jesus teach the uh, the, the Lord's prayer they said how can this be? who could do such a thing? could forgive in that way and Jesus clarified for if you forgive men when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive men their sins your father will not forgive you your sins he's being practical when you have a hard prideful unforgiving heart you put up your shields against God's forgiveness you're not going to him in your pride keeping short accounts for forgiveness, you set yourself apart and you damage your fellowship with God. So as we finish today, looking at the good news, the good news is we have been forgiven. And how do we live that out? By being forgiving people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it sounds so good. Forgiving others is hard. But those of us, when we're forgiven, a weight is lifted. Like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, the sin is lifted. It's taken care of by the empty tomb. But Lord, it's so hard sometimes to extend that grace to others who offend us. Father, if we have a hard time forgiving, we have to ask the question, have we ever experienced true forgiveness from you? Lord, I trust that we have my lord i pray that you would lay on our hearts those situations those people who we need to practice the biblical art of letting go letting go my right to be offended to be this, the to be one who has who has suffered and been a victim of others lord to let go of that offense and forgive them based on jesus death for all of us on the cross Lord, their sins, as well as ours, have been paid for by the blood of Jesus. And Lord, we just trust that through our forgiving hearts, that they will be pointed to Christ and find eternal life and forgiveness through Jesus. Help us, Father, in our attitudes and in our forgiving hearts to be witnesses, to be missionaries to a hurting world who longs to be forgiven. Father, this is our prayer. And we pray it in Jesus' loving name, amen. God bless you and keep you today.